The following sermon is by a guest speaker at Community Church in Edwardsburg, Michigan. If you've never visited us at Community Church, we invite you to join us at 28647 US 12 West in Edwardsburg. We hope you are encouraged by the following message. You know, I want to thank uh, so many people uh, when the word got out, when the cat got out of the bag that I was going to be preaching today, which I was really doing my best not to not to share, to be completely honest. I already tend to put enough pressure on myself, but so many of you reached out to let me know that you've been praying for me, and I really appreciate that. Uh, it's very kind of you. One group in particular I'd like to just take a, a quick second to acknowledge. Uh, my friends from small group. Can you put your hands up? Where are my friends at from small group? There you go. Get the hands up. I want you guys to look around at these people for a couple reasons. One, I want them to be slightly embarrassed, just a little bit, because that's what family does, right? you got to embarrass each other a little bit. So I've known about this for... I don't know, five or six weeks, something like that, and um, trying to collect my thoughts, which it's, there's a lot going on. It's not great. And um, so I told the small group this last Tuesday in, in a prayer request that, you know, I don't make a big deal about it, but I just pray for peace, um, for clarity of thought and mind, and that God's word would be the word that comes out, not mine, because there's nothing good going on here. But God's word is really what we want to get out. And... Uh, they lost their minds. They, Steph and I talked about it later, and I'm like, I don't know if I, if I regret telling them, but there was like an audible gasp. Uh, there was mention of a, a fog machine. <laughs> don't see that. Um, T-shirt cannon, I think, was in there somewhere. Um, they're going to have, Mike, they're going to have you be the hype man and do the whole, you know, Chicago Bulls intro thing. No, that's, that's not needed. But I do want to mention uh, the importance of small group in my life, and I hope that if you're not plugged into one, you get plugged into one, because they are such a wonderful group of people to go through and do life with. Uh, I don't know if it, what it's like for you, but sometimes life can be hard, and it can be challenging, and we have lots of valleys. We, cl we climb through together uh, to the mountaintop, and so we're able to share prayer requests with each other, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're able to share how God answered prayer and rejoice with one another that we see God move. And that's awesome. That's what it's about. Uh, to me, that's just one of the most beautiful pictures of the early church that we see in the book of Acts. So if you're not plugged into a small group, please, I would highly recommend it. Feel free to touch base with me afterwards. But it's just such a wonderful experience. I know for Steph and I especially, uh, times have been tough, but God has just blessed uh, putting us around a community that loves us so much. Today we are going to go through the book of Esther, and when I say go through, I mean we're going to, we're going to sprint through it. I don't know if you know this, but there's a time requirement here, so I think they say I have to be done by 2 o'clock, so you should be okay, um, but we'll, we'll find out. One question I did want to start with, though, is I don't know if you've ever had someone older and wiser in your life who has informed you that sometimes your greatest strength can also be your greatest weakness. Think about that for a second. I put a few up there that relate to me, and if I listed my weaknesses, I'd need a few more slides. There's, there's a whole lot going on, but confidence. So confidence is, is a good thing, right? Being confident in who you are, being confident in the Lord. But man, that's a slippery slope, and that can lead to pride and arrogance. Quick thinking, too quick to, to speak sometimes. That, you can definitely tell the weakness on that. Um, Mike and I are fortunate we get to hang out a lot. 
I don't know if our wives appreciate that, but we do. Um, and we get to broadcast Edwardsburg sporting events together sometimes, and so I do the play-by-play for it. So being able to think quickly and regurgitate what you just saw happen accurately, you got to be on your toes. You got to be able to do that quickly. Uh, it fails you in just about every other area of life. <laughs> That's it's not an advisable skill to have, to be honest with you, because uh, it just comes in and goes out, and you're like, oh, I'd like to take that back, but I can't. Compartmentalizing. Uh, I really appreciate that uh, God's been able to develop this in me a little bit more as time's gone on, where I have a 40-minute drive to and from work, which most of you think that's a long time, but I really enjoy it, because by the time I get home, I've already filed my work life away, and now I can focus on my home life. And then Stephanie asked me, what did you do at work today? <sighs> I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> it's gone. I was work. It was, it was fine, I think. I mean, if there's something big, I'll mention it. I, I don't know. But then that also helps me at work to be able to focus on my job and leave my family life at home. Uh, still reaching out, of course, and not totally ignoring anybody. But what I do find is that can certainly be a weakness when it comes to reading Scripture and doing my devotions, where I will read a passage, but I fail to take a step back and see how it actually connects with the rest of Scripture. I think of this when I uh, read my children Bible stories. We read, you know, creation, Noah and the ark, you know, Joseph. We hit Daniel in the lion's den. But we don't actually connect the dots for them, so to speak. I think of reading scripture similar to connect the dots. When I read those little pockets, that's all I see are those little dots. But when I actually step back, I can see how it connects to the beautiful picture of scripture. So today we're going to do a little bit of running around here. We're going to be in Esther. We're going to hit Romans a little bit. So buckle up. This could be interesting. Romans 8.28, this is a verse that we're going to be hitting on quite a bit today. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things work together. All things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. So Esther, if you're not familiar, and I, I find that even Christians who've, who've been saved for years may not spend as much time in the Old Testament, so if you know the story really well, please indulge me. But Esther is a wonderful book. It's one of my favorite books. She is an amazing person. And this really lays out some of the background for the Jews who lived in Persia around 480 B.C. Pastor Dan is going through the book of Daniel right now, and you might remember that the, the Jews of that time were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Well, eventually, the Babylonians are defeated by the Medo-Persians, who are eventually defeated by the Greeks. On and on it goes, and the Israelites get tossed to and fro from one empire to another. So this is during the Persian reign. It also provides a beautiful glimpse of God's, what I would call a, a subtle providence, God's directing hand, his orchestrating of events things that we would probably see on a daily basis if we actually took the time to stop and, and look. We usually w- use words like, oh, that was a coincidence, or, oh, look at this little thing, like we're shocked. But it's God actually directing and orchestrating these things in our life. And it's really easy to miss those things, because I don't know about you, but the last year has been pretty crazy for us. A um, lot, lot going on in the world. And the noise of all these things going on can so easily drown out God takes him out of the picture. And if we don't stop to actually look for him, 
we may miss him. If we don't stop to listen for him, we may not hear him. And that's true in the story of Esther as well, because not one time, this is a good Bible trivia, the next time we have trivia night, Jim will probably ask this, but not one time is God's name mentioned in the book of Esther. One other book that doesn't have God's name mentioned, Song of Solomon. There you go. Now you everybody got that one right come trivia night. But not one time is his name mentioned, so if you're not looking for him in the book, you won't see him. So as we go through it, we will take a couple pauses near the end where we will reflect on God's subtle providence, how he set things up for the Jews of this time. So our setting is in Persia. Persia has 127 provinces. The capital city of Persia is Susa, or Shushan. Here's a picture or a map of the Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great was the head cheese for quite a while. He's the one that actually beat the Babylonians and defeated them. Darius the Great is his son that comes up next. And then you have Xerxes, not the Great. He must have been pretty average. Um, but Xerxes is the one who's actually king during the story of Esther. And you can see Susa almost smack dab in the middle. We have a few characters in our story. One I mentioned was King Xerxes, but up there it says King Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus is King Xerxes' English name. Xerxes was his Greek name. Xerxes' name mentioned 175 times in the book of Esther. That's 175 times more than God's name. Pretty bad temper, emotional fellow, um, not really stable whatsoever. You have Queen Vashti. We'll learn a little bit more about her in chapter 1. And she's a very strong, independent-thinking woman, not going to be bossed around. You have Haman the Agagite. Haman is a very uh, anti-Semitic officer in the Persian force. And he's very wealthy. He's powerful and influential. We have Mordecai the Benjamite. And Mordecai is a Jew and is actually his relative Kish, who was taken during the first uh, war with Babylon. He was taken in exile, and so Mordecai is a relative of one of those who were taken in the invasion, and he's also the cousin of Esther. And Esther, we find out that she's a Jewish orphan. Her mom and dad passed away, and Mordecai took her in and raised her as his own daughter. Most historians think around this time Esther's in her early 20s. So Esther chapter 1 starts out with a six-month war planning commission taking place. Why? Great question. Thank you for asking. Well, the war commission is because Darius the Great, Xerxes' dad, Ahasuerus' dad, um, he lost to the Greeks. One of the famous battles that he lost was the Battle of Marathon. If you're a historian buff, you might have heard of that. So he lost that battle. So they're trying to get back the force to go and reattack the Greeks. Darius dies around 490 BC, so he can't carry it out. So passes on now to King Ahasuerus. And so he has a six-month war planning party that goes, that goes down at the beginning of chapter one. And it's going to end in a seven-day drunken festival. During this festival, he asks for Queen Vashti to come and display her beauty for all these princes of the land of Persia. She refuses. She doesn't have anything to do with that. She refuses to come. This sent a bit of a shockwave through the group of men who were there. Um, most historians actually think she didn't come out because she was pregnant at that time with her son Artaxerxes. But because she didn't come out, there is a fear that the word's going to get out to the other women who were there. And then it'll start spreading to the rest of Persia, and you're going to have a women's revolution. Women who think they can stand up for themselves, who don't have to do what their husbands tell them to do. 
I mean, if the queen can do it, why can't everybody? So they have to put her in her place. And so they talk about it, and they decide what they're going to do is they're going to remove her from being queen, and she can no longer come into the presence of the king. So they take her title. That's kind of where chapter 1 ends. We get into chapter 2, and if you don't know your history, there's a bit of a break there. It reads like it goes from chapter 1 straight to chapter 2, but there's actually a three-year gap there. And during that three-year gap is when King Ahasuerus and his forces went back to Greece to attempt to defeat them. They lose. Again, King Ahasuerus comes back. He's pretty ticked off. He's got that temper thing going. So to kind of help distract him and take his mind off you know, getting defeated by these Greeks, they institute what we might call The Bachelor. That's a pretty popular show from what I hear. Not that I'm going to watch it. But The Bachelor. And they are going to try and find him a new queen. And so out of about 25 million women who live in the land of Persia during this time, they find the 400 most beautiful virgins, and they bring them to the palace. And then they go through a 12-month preparation period, 12 months, food, beauty supplies, fragrances, whatever they need, whatever they need, these ladies get. And then they're taken one at a time before the king, and then he gets to decide who his new queen will be. Out of 25 million women, 400 taken to the palace, he chooses Queen Esther. We read in Esther 2.7 that she had a beautiful figure. She was lovely to look at. I think we'll also discover that she was beautiful of character, too. Everybody who came into contact her was won over, and you can read that through the entire book. She just made an impression. She won grace and favor in the sight of King Ahasuerus. I do also want to mention, it's important to note, that Mordecai told her when she was chosen to go, don't reveal that you're a Jew. Keep that to yourself. Don't share that. Persia, very anti-Semitic. Everybody hated the Jews in Persia. Well, there's a plot that's afoot. There's a plot. At the end of chapter 2, we find that Mordecai is sitting at the gate, sitting outside the palace, because, I don't know, maybe Mordecai is a bit of a smotherer. He wants to know what's going on, keeping an, an ear out for Esther's name, seeing if he can hear what's happening. Well, in Esther chapter 2, near the end, we say, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry. They sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men and women, excuse me, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the King. Now I'm trying to think back to my world civ classes. I know Pastor Dan talked about it last week a little bit. Uh, I, did not, I did not do great in those, in those classes, I'm not going to lie. It was not my strong suit. Um, but I do remember back around this era of life, uh, assassination attempts were pretty, pretty common. I mean, that's how you got into power, is you're going to have to take out the top dog. It just happens to be God's subtle providence that Mordecai is there, and he hears this plot to, to, to go down. And then they write it down. Now, if you're the secretary and you're writing this down, big deal. I mean, insignificant. But you have to think as well, the king, in order to keep himself alive, he would reward those who would actually call out assassination attempts. He would reward them. That way people would actually speak up and not just let it happen. So they wrote it down. 
we roll right into Esther chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants would, uh, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Some of the king's servants then report this to Haman. Remember at the beginning we talked about Haman. He was, he's got a pride issue here, a bit arrogant, a little bit full of himself. He's wealthy. He already hates the Jews. He finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. How dare he? Haman is filled with fury, and he hatches a plan not just to kill Mordecai. He's going to take it to the next level. He's going to kill all the Jews in Persia. That's his endgame, to kill all of them. So they cast lots to determine what day it would be that they would set out this annihilation of the Jews. It's determined to be about a year from this time. He then goes in and sells his plan to King Ahasuerus. The word gets out. They send out an edict. An edict cannot be overruled. Once the edict is sent out by the king, that's the law. That's what's going to happen. No changing it. Not even the king can change it. The city of Susa, thrown into great confusion. But we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If I got this message, if I was a Jew living back then, I don't know if I would believe that. That'd be pretty tough. That'd be pretty tough. So this reaction from Haman, irrational, over the top. Why is that? Well, there's a bit of a history with the family. They have some family problems. Haman the Agagite actually comes from the line of the Amalekites. And you might read about the Amalekites back in Genesis 36. Most of us have heard of Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Well, Esau had a son named Eliphaz who had a son named Amalek. And that's where the line of the Amalekites started. The Amalekites were pretty much a thorn in the side of the Israelites for most of their history. When they crossed the Red Sea shortly thereafter in Exodus 17, we read that they were attacked by the Amalekites. They did not fear God. They attacked them. Not only did they attack them, they attacked the back half of them, those who were lagging behind. Who tends to lag behind? Maybe you're sick. You're weary. Maybe kids. I don't know. Who's going to follow the back of the line? That's who they attacked. God tells Moses to write it down. Write it down. Do not forget, because I'm going to blot out the name of the Amalekites. Numbers 14, after the spies come back from spying on the land of Canaan, God uses the Amalekites and Canaanites to bring judgment on the Israelites for disobeying. In Judges 6, we read that the Midianites and the Amalekites would often steal the resources of the Israelites, crops, animals, whatever, and it brings the Israelites low. But here's what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 25. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. 
Some time goes by. And we find that in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel takes the word of the Lord to Saul, tells Saul that God wants him to go and kill the Amalekites. Don't just kill them. Kill the men, you kill the women, you kill the children, you kill the babies, you kill the animals, and take nothing. But if you know anything about King Saul, he has a, he has a hard time following through on things. He tends to disobey. And um, they leave the king alive, some of the king's family. You might remember the king. His name's King Agag. Haman the Agagite, King Agag. A little connection there. And they take the best of the spoils. Well, Samuel's furious. He goes back to Saul, reams him out for the rest of the chapter. And then we get into the end of 1 Samuel 15, 32 to 33. And it says, Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Cheerfully. Did not think his life was in jeopardy at all. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Certainly could be the cause for, for some resentment, for some bitterness issues. We read a little bit further in 1 Samuel 30 that some of the remaining Amalekites who got away, they kidnapped some of David's wives and children. David went and rescued them, but killed those Amalekites. And then the last we know in Scripture, in 1 Chronicles 4.43, the remnant of the Amalekites were killed under King Hezekiah. Haman and his family are believed to be the end of the Amalekite line here. What we have is really kind of a, um, almost like a Hatfield and McCoys, but it's been taking 1,500 years to get to the end of this. 1,500 years before the book of Esther, before the events in Esther, was about the time that God told Moses to write it down. He's going to take care of the Amalekites. 1,500 years. I know when I pray, I typically have a timeline in my mind when I'd like to see prayer answered, and it's not 1,500 years. But it's God's timing, not ours. And sometimes that's a tough lesson to learn. That's a tough one. Haman the Agagite, descendant of King Agag, descendant of the Amalekites. And you have Mordecai the Benjaminite, and he is a descendant of King Saul, who also comes from that line. So with the city in confusion after this edict goes out, the Jews are in mourning. Mordecai is near the gate, puts on sackcloth and ash. Esther reaches out to Mordecai. They talk through a servant back and forth. He pleads with her, act, do something. She's afraid. If she goes in before the king, he does not extend his royal scepter. She could be put to death on the spot. She's not been called in for more than 30 days. So then Mordecai replies to her again. Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Even though you're the queen, the edict's gone out, you're still dead. That will not keep you alive. How about the faith of Mordecai? 
to recognize the fact that even if she doesn't say anything, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That's faith. That's faith. It's going to happen with or without you. Esther replies back. Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That's a pretty remarkable woman. Early 20s. Early 20s. To have that much courage, that much boldness with life on the line, very real possibility she dies. If she perishes, she perishes. My prayer for my son and my daughter is that they would learn to have the faith of Mordecai and the courage and the boldness of Esther. Tremendous, tremendous people. Esther formulates a plan in chapter 5. She enters into the presence of the king. He does extend his scepter, so her life is granted. And he asks her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your wish? Anything up to half the kingdom it shall be yours. What would you like? And she invites the king and Haman to a feast. Haman, the egotist, the arrogant one, loves it. <laughs> king's made me number two in the land. I'm pretty great, Whatever. Now the queen wants me to come to a feast, just me, the king, and her. And if you've heard, I'm kind of a big deal. He loves it. At the banquet, the king asks Queen Esther what she would like. What's her wish? Up to the half, half the kingdom. Again, he offers it. She again invites them back to a feast tomorrow. Once again, Haman, thrilled. Thrilled. Thinks so highly of himself. He leaves, and on his way home, he passes by the gate, and everybody bows except Mordecai. Haman loses his mind. He is enraged, so upset. So he goes home, has his wife and his friends there, recounts all of his success, all of his glory, and how phenomenal of a person he is. And then he says, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All that, all that stuff that he has, not worth anything because of Mordecai the Jew. There's some hate, some bitterness deep-seated there. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Well, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. 50 cubits high, that's 75 feet. That's, that's pretty big. Pretty big. Not coincidentally, on the night he's having this built, King Ahasuerus can't sleep. It says, on that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Some people count sheep, whatever. Some people listen to Bob Ross. Whatever, don't judge me. Others have this book of memorable deeds, and they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Remember that? Chapter 2? We read that. 
The king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Well, the king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done. Hmm. Well, the king asks who's in the palace. And just about that time, Haman came into the court. And his servant said, well, uh, Haman's here. And we, we know, being the reader, we know he's there to get permission to hang Mordecai, to have him killed. So he has Haman brought into the chamber, and he asks Haman, what shall be done for whom the king desires to honor? Haman thinks, naturally, who does he want to honor more than me? Let me give you my laundry list, king. I'd like a horse. I'd like a nice robe, crown. Take me out in front of the people. Proclaim my greatness for them. Now, the king replies to Haman, hurry and take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I would have loved to have been there. That would have been pretty awesome. Be a fly on the wall for that. Just see the expression. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. (laughs) That had to be so tough for him. That would have been a treat to see. Well, after it was over, Mordecai goes back to the gate. Haman hurries home. In Esther 6.13, Haman then tells his wife and friends what happened. And his wife, who's such an encouragement, she is just, she is such a peach. Not only does she tell him to build the gallows, but now she tells him uh, that if Mordecai is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. As they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived to take Haman back for the second feast. Let's pick it up there. Esther 7, 1 through 3. So the king and Haman went into a feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Here we go. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. King Ahasuerus is enraged. He's so upset. He leaves. He goes out to the garden. Haman, meanwhile, throws himself at the feet of Esther, begging for his life because he knows it's in jeopardy. The king comes back in, and it looks to him like Haman's assaulting Queen Esther. While they're talking, the bag's thrown over Haman's head. A eunuch happens to mention that Haman had built some gallows that were intended for Mordecai. The king says, hang him on those gallows. Haman's household is given to Esther, who immediately gives it to Mordecai. And to counteract the first edict that went out for the annihilation of the Jews, they write a second edict, which allows the Jews to fight back on that day. And fight back they do. More than 75,000 of their enemies had died including Haman's ten sons in his line. 
Mordecai becomes number two in the land of Persia. He's celebrated by the Jewish people, and he's feared by their enemies. Even people who were in the land of Persia at that time either pretended they were Jews or in favor of the Jews so they would not die because they feared them so greatly. They had seen what God had done. Where was God in all of this? Never mentioned, but always active. How about having a queen who didn't want to be paraded around or gawked at by men? Just think, if she had gone in and followed through on what he asked then Queen Esther's role may not have been there because she would have still been queen. How about taking a lowly orphan Jewish girl and putting her in power to save her people? Well, that's, that's providential there. Having Mordecai in the right place to hear about the plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Softening the heart of an irrational and emotional man like King Ahasuerus. No easy deed. I always liked the one where on the night the gallows were being built for Mordecai, the king couldn't sleep. And then it happens to be the book of memorable deeds that are written for him, or read for him, and it happened to be that passage about Mordecai. Hmm. Someone once said... This is more for us now. Someone once said that life and pain are synonymous. If you're alive, you're going to have struggles. You're going to have pain. You're going to have highs and lows. Maybe financial hardships. Could be health concerns. Broken relationships. Career problems, stress. Passing of loved ones. All potential opportunities for pain. For us... Where's God at in all this? Where's he at in your walk? Is he present? He is. You may need to look for him. That noise around us, so loud, can so easily drown him out. But even during those times, it's important to remember, because we know, we say we know, but do we know? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Time of reflection is important in life. I think of uh, my parents and, and others who just tell me, you need to really enjoy raising your kids right now because time goes by so quick. It goes by so fast. I see those Facebook memories that pop up and, oh, that's a tearjerker. They're that big. That's when they were still sweet before they had all these emotions. And it's just, eh. But man, they're, they're great. But time goes by so quickly. If we don't take time to reflect, we may miss seeing God's hand move in our lives. The, uh, the Jews still celebrate Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai Institute, if you read it later in the book of Esther, they actually have a feast called Purim. Pur means lots, because if you remember... At the beginning, the day they, or they uh, found out the day they were going to annihilate the Jews is because they cast lots. So they have this feast of lots, and it's a lot like Halloween, and they celebrate this every year. Next year, it'll be mid-March, the 15th and 16th. The Feast of Purim. They dress up, and they party, they drink, they eat, they read the book of Esther together. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, they have rattlers, and they'll rattle it 
so it drowns out his name. Or they'll boo and they hiss. In France, they'll actually have rocks with Haman's name written on it, and they'll bash them together. Some countries have a piece of wood with Haman's name written on it. They take a hammer and they beat the wood to drown out his name. Uh, earlier this week, we talk about subtle providence. Earlier this week, uh, Marissa, our social media director, posted some memories from about uh, 40 years ago or so. This is uh, 1981, and this is the building you're sitting in right now. How about that? And she put up about seven different pictures that I'll, I'll show you as well. But we have uh, some saints with us today. I know Miss Bev was there at the beginning, and our friend Betty Ho. Some of you might remember Betty. Betty and David joined uh, the church back in 1962 when it was a little, little building over on M62. So I reached out to Betty on Facebook, because Betty might be the coolest grandma out there. And uh, I said, Betty, you know, what were, what were some of the struggles at the beginning? And what were some of the prayer requests? Because maybe we as a church can practice reflecting on how God has brought us here to this point in time. And she told me the biggest struggle at the beginning was organizing the new church. David and I started attending in 1962. There were ups and downs in those years. It was good to have counsel of pastors in the area, then the guidance of a church in the area we, until we had at least seven godly men in leadership. Prayer started long before the building. Back in the little building on M62, we found ourselves with just a few people and no pastor. Our teenagers began attending youth group at Northside Baptist Church. At that time, we were praying that God would keep the church going because we saw the need for a good church in Edwardsburg. When Northside sent out Pastor Barbin and we began to grow, we continued to pray to reach people of the community. Then as the congregation continued to grow, we prayed for a larger building to reach the unsaved and teach those that God sent to us. David and I would pray for the children God allowed us to teach and the teachers and leaders that worked with our children. The church meant a great deal to our children. Here's a group of guys that worked on the building back then. I think Mike Simons was in there as well. Here's a picture of the commemorating service they had. We have Dick Christensen and Bob Marvel and David Ho himself and Pastor Barbin and Ernest Sisk over on the right. How far we've come, how far God's brought us. I, I kind of laugh when she talks about how they would pray specifically for the children, the teachers, and the leaders, and that may be one of the strongest ministries we have today. There's a children's program down the hall. So many people that I've talked to from the last 22 years here have been touched by the ministry of, of David and Betty and Bev and all those who were here at the beginning. Who knew back in 1962, back in a little building on M62, this is what God had in store. Who can put an orphan Jewish girl in a place of power in a kingdom that hates her kind? God and God alone. Who can bring us to where we are right now? God and God alone. A couple of takeaways for us. One, and this is a huge amen for me, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Ordinary people. Our past doesn't dictate our future. For those first two, you think about the difference between Haman and Esther. Haman, the powerful, wealthy elitist. Esther, the lowly, orphan Jewish girl. Your past doesn't dictate your future. And God uses ordinary people. 
to do extraordinary things. It's God's timing, not ours. And I don't know if you've ever tried to force it. It, does, it doesn't work. It don't, don't bother. It doesn't, it doesn't work. God knows what the timing is. He knows what your need is. He knows your time constraints. It's his timing, not ours. How about though invisible, God is invincible. Praise God. And that time of reflection is important. It's important. It's important for your walk in so many ways. It's important because it can deepen your relationship with the Lord. It builds up that trust. It builds up that hope that we have. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a great verse, but it's really hard to remember when you're going through hard times. It's really hard to remember. But the more you can look back and reflect on life and see where God has delivered you, how he's brought you through those times, the deeper your walk will get. The stronger your, your beliefs, your convictions about this passage will become. And then when you actually start going through those difficult times, though you may not know where you're going or what's going to happen, you have that trust and hope in our Lord and Savior. I'll have the worship team come on back up. Let's go ahead and pray together real quick as you guys make your way up. God, I thank you so much for this story of Esther. Uh, what an encouragement it is to so many of us who have walked through difficult times thinking we were all alone. It helps us as we continue in life to remember that even though you're invisible, even though you're sometimes silent, you still hear our prayers and your timing is perfect. I thank you for this truth in Romans 8.28 of how you work all things together for the good of those who love you even if we don't see it. Help us to spend time looking back at the work you've done for us, in us, and through us, and may it take our relationship with you to new heights. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's message was brought to you by a guest speaker at Community Church in Edwardsburg. For more information about the church, you can visit our website, edwardsburg.church. You may also contact the church via email, info at edwardsburg.church, or call us at 269-663-2648. Thank you for listening.